He, that is Jesus, also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some grains or heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Recently, I heard about a fellow who needed to come to Florida from the Midwest, and uh, the, the problem was he doesn't drive, and he could not take an airplane or a train, and so he found a bus, and he, this bus is a very interesting bus. He, through associations and relationships, he was able to get a seat on this bus, even though this bus is filled with Amish people. It's an Amish bus, and as I heard the story of, of what was going on, I, I was like, huh, I, you know, Amish bus, that doesn't compute. Amish carriages, horses, right? Not on buses, but come to find out, that in, a person was telling me that there's actually a, quite a side hustle in the Amish communities. When they need to go somewhere that they don't want to take their horse and carriage, they will call up somebody that they know that has a car who they're friends or they work with, and they will pay them to transport them where they want to go. And so I was heard that, and I go, wow. 50 years of, you know, expectations just dashed in one story, you know? I was kind of disappointed to hear that, about that, the, that the Amish were, you know, like the rest of us, have the ability to split hairs on their, on their rules and their regulations and ignore the spirit of, of the law in order to, to get what they want. And of course, I shouldn't be surprised. We all do this in less obvious ways, and certainly the Pharisees, in this passage, had mastered the art of obeying the letter of the law while avoiding the spirit of the law. In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus uh, inaugurates a new era in redemptive history. He's making all things new. And in this era where he's making all things new, um, not everyone's thrilled by it, especially those who struggle with legalism, like the Pharisees. Uh, they, they are shocked by it, in fact. And so in this passage, you begin to see the conflict arise between Jesus and this new era of the gospel and those who are holding on to the old. 
Now, last week, if you remember, the Pharisees were confronting Jesus and the disciples over their lack of fasting. They came to him and said, John the Baptist's disciples fast. We fast. Everybody else fast. Why don't you guys fast? And Jesus gave them a parable. He said, you don't, you don't fast when the bridegroom has come. He, he pulled from the Old Testament uh, allusion to God being the bridegroom, coming for his people. And when the bridegroom comes, this is a celebratory time. This is a time of happiness and joy. You don't fast during that type of occasion. So Jesus is making the point that in this new era of redemptive history, he is the bridegroom has come, he's inaugurated it, and it's different. He's making all things new, and it's not a time to fast, but not everyone's going to be thrilled by this, like the Pharisees. So in this passage, there are four gospel applications I want us to focus on this morning. First of all, Jesus and human religion are incompatible. After the parable of the bridegroom, we have three parables that are maybe fairly well known to many of you this morning. In verse 36, he told them the parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and pieces from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. These parables are well known. Sometimes this parable, especially the last one or the, the, the wineskin one, gets used in a, an improper way in church. It's used as a club to gaslight people who are maybe resisting a, a new idea or a new ministry or a new program or a new direction in a church. And so as it's being explained by the champion of that idea, uh, they might respond to somebody who resists and say, listen, new wine requires new wineskin. In other words, you're the obstacle because you're not willing. And that's not what Jesus gave us, this parable. It's not a, a club against those who are asking legitimate questions about ministries or direction of a church. Instead, what he's doing here is making a point. I mean, obviously, uh, it makes no sense to maybe in our vernacular, tear out the, the knees of a new pair of jeans that you buy in order to take that section of new cloth and put it over the holes on that old pair of jeans, no matter how comfortable that old pair of jeans may be. And we all love our old jeans, but it just doesn't make sense because the minute you put that patched pair of old jeans in there in the washing machine and in the dryer, what's going to happen? The patch is going to shrink. The tear is going to reoccur. And on top of that, it just looks dumb. So, you know, those of you who are a stylist, I noticed one of our young ladies, stylish this morning, she doesn't have any cloth over her knees. That's solved. You don't have to worry about your patches, do you? Isn't that awesome? Nice style statement made here. And, and then, of course, you have this other, this other parable that's given, the wineskin. See, in the ancient world, they would take the skin of a goat, a lamb, and they would sanitize it, of course. That's an important factor to know. They would sanitize it, and then they would take their harvest of grapes, and as they would begin the process of making wine, they would pour it down the, that long neck, and they would fill that new uh, container with wine. And as the wine would ferment and begin to expand because the, the container, that wineskin from that animal was fresh and new and supple, had a lot of elasticity. It would stretch throughout the fermentation process. But if you took an old wineskin and you filled it up with 
new wine, what was going to happen? It, as that expansion took place, there would come a point where the old wineskin could not stretch any further, and it would burst. So Jesus is putting these uh, parables out there to this group of Pharisees. Why? Because they were saying, listen, Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you following our rules? Why aren't you doing what everybody else is supposed to do? And Jesus' answer to them is because what I'm bringing to you is new, and your old containers cannot hold it. It requires something new. It, it makes no sense for me to bring the, the new wine or the newness of the gospel and try to patch it in over the old covenant and the law of Moses. See, maybe putting it in uh, maybe our modern terms, uh, Jesus doesn't play well with other people. He doesn't play well with other religions. Jesus and the gospel that he brings to us does not play well. It doesn't plug and play with the philosophies of our world. And so churches that perhaps adopt uh, the philosophy of business and corporate, corporate America in order to grow their church. Yeah, they, there may be a numerical growth, but ultimately it's not the kind of growth that God wants to see because they're trying to take a little bit from the word of God and a lot from the corporate America. And those two ideologies are inhospitable. Parents, you're bombarded with parenting philosophies. And every generation of parents gets bombarded by some new parenting philosophies. We had it back in our day. His name was Dr. Spock, okay? Not that Spock, a different guy, Dr. Spock. And we've all have these you know, things put before us. And here's the issue with all of these parenting philosophies. Yes, there's areas of overlap, common grace between what is God's truth and some of these philosophies. But in the end of the day, they are inhospitable with the gospel and the word of God because they do not start at the same place that the gospel starts. They have presumptions and assumptions that are invalidated by the scriptures. So for example, the Bible starts with this simple fact. Your child is a stinker. He's a sinner. And unless God intervenes in that child's life, he will reject God his entire life, go about his own way, and face condemnation. The scripture starts at a very different place than our parenting philosophies do today or our marriage philosophies do today. Jesus and the gospel and human religions, they are incompatible. And you see this in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in the book of Galatians. You had Jews who were followers of Judaism who liked what Jesus was saying, and they, they tried to have Jesus and the Old Covenant together and put them together, and they were called Judaizers. And there's an entire book, the book of Galatians, and another book, the book of Hebrews, that are written to show how inhospitable, incompatible Jesus and the gospel is with Judaism. I mean, face it, church, if Judaism, which is the closest world religion that has commonality with Christianity, if Christianity and the gospel is incompatible with Judaism, what is it with the rest of the world's religions and ideologies and philosophies? It's completely incompatible. Jesus doesn't play well 
with false gods and false religions and false ideologies, no matter what their origin, whether we patch them our own paradigm together, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Dr. So-and-so, a little bit of what this social influencer says, doesn't matter. Ultimately, it falls apart. It just looks dumb. Because a new wine of the gospel requires a completely new wineskin, a new paradigm. So first, Jesus and human religion are incompatible. Secondly, from that third parable that we read this morning, Jesus is dismissed. The self-sufficient person, the self-satisfied person dismisses Jesus, just disregards him. Verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now at first, this looks like a contradiction, doesn't it, to the, to the new wine, new wine skin parable. This looks like it's contradicting. It's like, you don't even want the new, just the old. But this, what Jesus is actually doing here is he's quoting in a proverb. And this proverb taps into the tendency that we have to resist change in our carefully constructed world. And the example given is wine. And so by illustration, someone is presented with a, a new vintage, a new winemaker. Hey, you know, Rick, I got this new bottle of wine. You should try it. It's really good with hints of whatever, okay? I'm not a wine connoisseur, so, you know, no. All right? And so he comes, come, and, and what does Rick say? Eh, nah, I'm good. Doesn't even try it. I, I, like, I like my old stuff. It's, you know, I'm, I'm fine right where I'm at. I'm, and put it in modern vernacular, eh, nah, I'm good. I'm good right where I'm at. I'm fine. And so Jesus is making a point here, an important spiritual point. A point, you know, parents, every one of you have experienced this in one way or another. Remember what it's like when you tried to introduce new food to your little baby or your toddler? You remember what that's like when, you know, they're used to SpaghettiOs? Do y'all still eat Spaghetti? Probably not, you know, and that shows you how out of date I am. But, you know, they're used to SpaghettiOs, and now you say, this, th today we have Broccoli! How's that go for you, right? Doesn't go well at all, you know? Or, you know, instead of those processed breaded pieces of mystery meat you call chicken nuggets, today, here's some fish. Ah! Right? They don't want it. They're good. Don't give me, don't give me, you know, salad. I just want my mac and cheese. Three meals a day, every day for, you know, what, years. I mean, this is the way children are, right? They're, I'm good. I'm good right where I'm at. I'm just satisfied. And so when you think about it, this is the response to so many people when they are confronted with Jesus. They look at what's being said, what Jesus says and what's offered. They look at themselves and they go, eh, I'm good. You know, you know who really needs this? It's the neighbor on the other side of the street. Have you seen that guy? You know, blah, 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 blah. But for me, no, I'm good. I'm not happy where I'm at. I don't need to bother with this. The issue is like that toddler. That toddler doesn't have enough sense to know he needs his broccoli. He doesn't know that the fresh fish and the grilled chicken is so much better than the processed stuff with the fake breading and who knows what part of the chicken it even came from. All right? He doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's good for him. And this is what's happening in the spiritual realm. 
our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow students at college or school, they just can't see how badly they actually need Jesus. In fact, they don't want to see him. And they won't want to see him unless Jesus opens their eyes. So it doesn't do any good to try to force Jesus down their throat. It doesn't do any good to harangue like we ha- might have to do to our toddlers because you're going to eat this broccoli by the, you know, whatever. It doesn't do any good to do that in the spiritual realm. All we can do is pray, love them, and befriend them, and be a genuine companion and friend, and then just pray that God will open their eyes so they'll understand how bad they need their Jesus. That's what we do. At the end of the day, what they're asking and what they're thinking to themselves is, eh, what can Jesus do for me? Because I'm good. I'm happy where I'm at. So first, Jesus and human religion are incompatible. Jesus is dismissed by the self-righteous and the self-satisfied. And then thirdly, as the son of man, Jesus claims lordship over everything. In the first five verses of chapter 6, we really get a glaring example of the, of the mind of a legalist. And these first five verses, we're introduced to the first century version, the Pharisaic legalist. And the, the Pharisees, over the centuries, previous two or three centuries, in cooperation with the rabbis, the scribes, they had taken the law of Moses and they had parsed it out into infinite detail. So, for example, they would look at the fourth commandment to, to keep the Sabbath day holy, to not work on the Sabbath day. And then they asked the question, what would be the natural question? Well, what does it mean to work? And so they began to talk about this and dig in and dive in, and they ultimately came up with 39 activities that fit the category of work. 39 things that you had to avoid on the Sabbath. Otherwise, you are breaking the fourth commandment. And so here we have Jesus and the disciples. It's a Sabbath. They're walking through the the field of grain and they're hungry. You know, the Cracker Barrel was full and the waiting line was too big and they wanted to eat now. And so what did they do? They broke off some of the grain, which was allowed by the law of Moses. There's no problem with that. They weren't stealing. This was allowed. They, they broke it off and then they, you know, they rubbed it between their hands to separate the husk and the trap. And then they took the little uh, pieces of grain and they peeled it and cracked it and ate it. Had a little quick meal. And the, the Pharisees see that and they go, aha, you have broken the law. You have broken four of the 39 categories of work. You have harvested, you have threshed, you have reaped, and you have prepared the meal and winnowed it, you are guilty of breaking the law. You see, what the Pharisaical legalists did is they elevated their interpretation and their application of God's word to a matter of first priority. They put their application and interpretation and understanding of the law at the same level of the literal words, keep the Sabbath day holy. And it was now a fundamental of the faith. That's what the Pharisaic legalists did. And by the way, that's what modern-day legalists also do. I was reminded of that even this morning as we prayed together. There was a line in our prayer where 
we were encouraged to not to quench the Holy Spirit, but to abstain from the appearance of evil. And those of us raised in legalistic denominations, and that's part of our heritage, a line like abstain from the appearance of evil was a club in the hands of a legalist because they would parse, what does it look like to avoid the appearance of evil? Well, then you really should not go to the movies because at that movie theater where you wanted to go see the Apple Dumpling Gang and it's G-rated, there is the Exorcist with the R-rated and people don't know, are you going to see the Apple Dumpling Gang, Christy? Or are you going to go see the Exorcist? And of course, she was going to see her, her husband just said the Exorcist, but anyway. <laughs> and I outed him so he can now be in trouble with his wife, but anyway. But you got so you couldn't go to the movies, and and of course there were certain things you can't wear, and how long and how short your hair has to be. If you're a woman, your hair needs to be a certain length, so that you can't be mistaken for a man. And if you're a man, your hair needs to be a certain shortness, so that when people look at you from behind, they don't think, "Is that a girl?" You know, I was so jealous of Liam Richards' hair this morning up here. Those beautiful red locks, you know. It's like, Lord, why don't you let me grow my hair? I, do, I want Samson hair, right? <laughs> but boy, would my heritage have thrown me under the bus for that. Because of that hair. So that's what the modern-day legalists do. They elevate their application of the gospel or of a word in the New Testament to a, a fundamental of the faith. I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm concerned even in our conservative reformed circles like the PCA, what I see on Twitter and the social media and the blogosphere, the way the word heretic is being thrown around and slapped on people simply because they do not agree with the interpretation of a New Testament word as it relates and applies to a certain social issue. This is what modern-day legalists do. They, they separate from other Christians over the gray areas of the Bible. And they judge your spirituality because you like old wine. Yeah, because you drink wine at all, and you're a lesser Christian. Why does this happen? And by the way, it's not a new phenomenon. It's happened throughout the centuries. It happened in the Old Covenant. It happens in the New Covenant. Why does this happen? It's because we all have a sinful tendency towards self-righteousness. There is something inside of us that yearns to earn and justify our acceptance by God. And so we try to work and perform, and this is the mentality that we have. The, the Pharisees, they were religious unbelievers, and, and their form of self-righteousness focused on acceptance with God. In other words, they had to do all these things if they wanted to get in on the, the goodness of the eternal kingdom of God. Otherwise, they were sinners, and they would be left out for all of eternity. So the religious unbeliever, his self-righteousness is going to be geared towards earning God's acceptance. But believers who have self-righteousness welling up within them, it focuses on approval from God, not acceptance. And there's a difference. In other words, I have to live a certain way. I don't do these things. I have to do these things so that... God will bless me in my life that I have right now. 
so that I'll have a good life. I'll get the things that I want to do, and ultimately, I'll get rewards in heaven. And so this approval that they're seeking out, oh, we know we don't work to get eternal life, but you do or don't do in order to get God's approval. Both mentalities are examples of the mindset of a legalist that Jesus is dealing with right here. So how does he correct it? He answers this charge. They, they say, why are you breaking the law on the Sabbath? In other words, you guys are sinning. Why are you doing this? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. He's, he brings them to a story in 1 Samuel where David, who is the anointed king of the Jews, but he's fleeing from his, for his life from the current king, Saul. And he has his men, his followers with him, and they're, they're starving, and they're on the run, and they come to the tabernacle, and they ask the high priest, do you have any food? We're starving. And he says, the only thing I have is this bread, which is part of the ceremony of sacrifices and prayers and everything else that's done in the temple. The law allowed the priests to eat that bread after the day was done. But in this case, Elimelech looked at what was needed and looked at this, what he had, and he gave that bread to David and to his followers. And so what Jesus does is he gives a, a huge dilemma to the Pharisees. How is it that what his disciples did is any different than what David did with his followers in 1 Samuel? And it creates a a dilemma. Was David a lawbreaker? Jesus uses that. The same word that they use against Jesus, Jesus now says, well, what about David? Was he a lawbreaker? And the Pharisees, they don't want to condemn David, not David. He's the father. You know, no, absolutely not. He, he would obey the laws of the Sabbath and obey the Mosaics. Also, now Jesus lives, leaves them with really only a limited number of options. What they have to now begin to consider is that they had misinterpreted and misapplied God's law. That God, through the law, never intended to prohibit people from meeting basic needs. That, like eating on the Sabbath or repurposing consecrated bread. In other words, David's story is actually an example of how the law was supposed to be applied. That in certain situations of need, the letter of that law could be superseded in order to meet the needs of the individual. Because God is always more interested in mercy and grace than the ritual of ceremony. As one author puts it, if it was proper for the earthly king, David, to violate a ceremonial law of the old covenant, when the Lord's anointed, he, David, as the earthly king, was on the Lord's business on the Sabbath, then surely the eternal anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, and his followers may break a man-made law while they're doing the Lord's business on the Sabbath. Jesus presents them with this, and then he drives the point home, and he lays the verdict down. Why is this happening with you guys? Verse 5, you're not recognizing who I am. I am the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, he says to them. He makes it clear that the real issue here is that they had created a biblical ethic of worship and service and behavior that missed the point completely. The Sabbath was all about pointing to the ultimate Sabbath rest that God had promised that would one day come through the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus. Everything associated with the Sabbath 
finds its fulfillment, Jesus says, in me, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The real issue here for the Pharisees was not the actions of the disciples. The real issue was their rejection of Jesus and his identity and authority. He's the son of man. He rules over the application of the Sabbath and of the entire Ten Commandments, which he gave to Moses in the first place. He's the son of man. He has the right to regulate what occurs on the Sabbath. But by by putting forward and proclaiming his lordship over the Sabbath, Jesus is actually proclaiming his lordship over everything. He is Lord over God's law. Who is the person who is Lord over God's law? God. As Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, you guys are resisting the person who has come, the the bridegroom of the Old Testament prophesied, the son of man of the prophecies of Daniel, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And this leaves the Pharisees with the ultimate dilemma, a decision to make, and it does the same thing with us. Is what Jesus says about himself true or not? Is Jesus, God in the flesh, Lord of everything or not? Does Jesus reveal how God wants us to live and to worship and to serve or does he not? Does Jesus have authority over everything in this universe, including every little aspect of your life, or not? How would you answer that question this morning? It's an important one. I would suggest to you, based upon the authority of Jesus, that your soul hangs in the balance of how you answer that question. Is Jesus Lord of everything, including yourself, or not? The scriptures tell us that when we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is Lord, and confess this with our mouth, then we are saved. Our salvation hinges on accepting that he is Lord over everything. One final gospel application this morning. The last portion of this passage, we see that Jesus saves those who respond in faith to his invitation. In the final verses, we have another Sabbath scene. Jesus enters the synagogue, and he's teaching, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees, the Bible says, they're they're watching Jesus. And it's kind of funny, the, the word there means they were pretending not to watch, but they're kind of glancing at him out of the corner of his eye. Have you ever, you know, been in a restaurant and some bizarro walks in, right? And you don't want to stare but you can't kind of help it. You, you know, you're like, you're looking at the door, but okay, in my peripheral vision, what is he doing? You know, that's what they're doing. They're pretending not to watch Jesus, but they're, they're, they're watching him. And they're watching him because they want to, to catch him. So verse eight, he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? See, the, again, remember those 39 categories? One of those categories, some of those categories had to do with medical needs. And, and so the Pharisees and the rabbis had to determine that if you give medical assistance to someone who was not in peril of losing their life, 
You know, if they have a, a spurting artery, you could wrap it to stop it, but, but you couldn't do anything beyond that, just enough to save their life. And then the next day, you could go and put sutures in and, you know, give them antibiotic cream or whatever, you know, they didn't have that back then, pour some whiskey, I don't know, whatever they did, rub some dirt in it, I don't know. But you did all that the next day. The only thing you could do medically was something that was of absolute necessity to save that person's life. Well, this man had lived with a withered arm, probably a birth defect of some kind all of his life. This wasn't a medical emergency. Jesus broke the law in the synagogue. And he says that a man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Think about that. Here's this man. His life is an absolute mess. You know, he's in the same boat as that leper. Remember we talked about the leprosy and, and how the ancient world viewed people who have like a birth defect or leprosy or some other kind of disease? This is viewed as a, as a punishment from God. This is seen as the result of sin, either by your parents or by you. In some way, you've earned this judgment from God. And so it was a, a mark of shame. And so here's this man with this this handicap, you know, didn't form right in the womb, and he's ostracized, and he's seen as an unclean sinner, and he could do nothing about it, but only Jesus could. And so on this day, he came to Jesus. Jesus invited him, and he responded to that invitation, and he came to Jesus just as he was, handicap and all, and what did he experience? He experienced the power of Jesus Christ, to save him and restore his life. He had been under the old, the old wineskin, the old wine, the old clothing, and all it brought was condemnation. That's what human religion brings. Jesus frees us from condemnation. The new way of the gospel brings life. It brings redemption. In this new era of redemptive history that Jesus inaugurates, responding in faith to his invitation always brings salvation and restoration every single time. Because the invitation of Jesus is simply this. Come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. What burden are you carrying this morning? What is it that is weighing you down, filling you with shame, holding, causing you to hold back? What is it that's destroying your marriage or your home or your life? What is it that you look at and you just can't get past it because of what this person did to me? Or you can't forgive yourself because of once again failing what you know is God's right will for your life. Jesus says, come, come to me and I will give you rest. May we come. Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to trust such a wonderful invitation, but I ask that you would open the eyes of those this morning who don't even see their need to think about that invitation. May the person who's here who, who essentially thinks, oh, well, I'm good, begin to realize they're not. 
And may their eyes be open. May the person who's here this morning because their life is upside down. They've experienced the shame of the handicapped man in his culture through their own sin or the sin of others. And Lord, would you give them the grace they need to respond in faith to your invitation to come. Come, all who are heavy laden, for you will give them rest. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.